Let's turn to Romans, first of all. All of what we've been doing since we've been back face-to-face is what I call a prelude to Hebrews 8.1 through 10.18, the central part of this homily sent to us from heaven for such a time as this, called Hebrews. Unknown human author, but certainly the divine author is known to us. My counsel to those who preach the word of God, to pastors and teachers, evangelists, if I'm able to give counsel, I don't know if I'm worthy to, but, and Pastor Brown and I talked about this recently, we prepare for messages. And to me, the preparation's been a lot more arduous than ever before because of the seriousness that I take with accuracy, precision of each message. But the preparation doesn't end until you get right here. He can, the Holy Spirit, if we're walking in the Holy Spirit and we're, we may be confident in our preparation, but if he's still directing our thoughts, he may change our course up to the moment of walking into the pulpit and thereafter. And we just have to be very careful to listen to a still small voice, not an audible one, but the Holy Spirit's voice. All of my training as a pastor has boiled down to being able to listen and maybe even to detect and discern the voice of the Holy Spirit. And that's very tricky because we can all say, God showed me this, God told me this, the Spirit led me to do this, and be off base. So it's, it's a lifetime art more than a science but it's walking with God and so I'm saying that because today's message might not or it may be reflected in the notes that come up on the website and that's always the case there may be notes which I will keep and put up on the website but they may differ radically from what I'm saying to you face to face and this is the formal message by the way Michael I'm on a roll now so In Romans chapter 16, and I just want to paraphrase basically, but last week we talked about the commandment of God. His commandment, his command is life. Jesus said, I've received the commandment from my Father, and that command is eternal life. He commands life. He commands us to live. And it's not something we can procrastinate about to obey. We just live. And we're going to consider that in our obedience. There's another commandment of the eternal God, though. And I think Paul put it well in Romans 16, 25, which I do have in my translation that I've translated this way. Now to him who has the power to strengthen you by my gospel, even the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of a mystery kept silent for ages of time gone by, but is now manifested through the writings of the prophets and made known to all the nations, note this phrase, by command, or you could say commandment, of the eternal God. To bring about, and this anticipates where we're going about our obedience to bring about the obedience of faith by all the nations. You could translate that in all the nations, or you could say by all the nations, which indicates that all humanity will be obedient to faith and believe. You can't be disobedient to faith and bow your knee and say, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and every knee will do that. Now, my question would be to all of those of us who preach the word of God, who witness, and it's my view, coming into focus at least, that Paul the Apostle anticipated that the whole community would become the apostolate and have the arsenal of weaponry that the apostles had. 
in the proclamation of the word of God. That's why he went into a plural in a passage that we're going to look at today in 2 Corinthians 10. You can be ready at that too. My question is, if the eternal God has commanded, and this is his essential command for our time, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of a mystery, be proclaimed, then why isn't it? Because that mystery happens to be in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 9 and 10, the mystery of God's will, which is to recapitulate or summarize everything in his son, Jesus Christ, whether things in heaven or things on earth. The gospel according to Paul, which is the gospel of God about his son, which was kept silent even as you read the prophets for ages gone by, but now God has commanded that it be proclaimed, the gospel, the preaching and proclamation of Jesus Christ according to, in compliance with, the apocalyptic revelation of the mystery of universal restoration. Then why isn't it? Does it grieve the spirit that across our land, in a nation which is on its last dying breaths except for God's unimaginable mercy which he may intervene with. At this time in history, across this world, across this nation, pulpit after pulpit will be preaching. Many of those who preach will have impeccable moral rectitude to recommend them. They will have been very moral men or women. But are they proclaiming Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery of the universal restoration of all things. Disobedience to that command of the eternal God is the reason this nation is where it is right now. Obedience to that command and I'm not talking just about preachers. I'm talking about the atlat apostolate, I call it. The on the level of our time apostolate, which is every one of you, all of us, in whom God has awakened faith, in whom God has been pleased to reveal his son. We become that apostolate in the sense that we are given the same apostolic arsenal, weapons of warfare, to present this gospel and to bring every thought into obedience or into captivity, better, to the obedience of Christ. So today, for the second time, we are face-to-face -face with the obedience of Christ. As Paul opened Romans with in 1.5, it is through Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead, that we received grace and apostleship. We. The authorization and the power to advance the obedience of faith by all the nations for the sake of his name. Romans opens with the obedience of faith, a curious phrase, and it closes with the phrase, the obedience of faith. Our subject is obedience. But we begin as we always must, with the obedience of Christ. So important is the theme, the obedience of Christ, that every thought is to be brought into captivity to it. We'll be seeing that in 2 Corinthians 10.5. Paul's military metaphor in 2 Corinthians 10.3-6 has to do with the weapons of warfare in his apostolic arsenal. At the base of 2 Corinthians, there was an accusation against Paul that he didn't amount to much face-to-face, -face, but he wrote weighty letters. That's like our government saying, well, what are you going to do about that aggressive action by that belligerent nation that may be 
an act of war. We're going to write a strongly worded letter. Well, they used to say that about Paul. These, the people that wanted to usurp the authority in Corinth over the genuine authority of Paul said, he doesn't, if you think about it, he doesn't really amount much to much. His speech isn't really like the philosophical speech that we're giving you, that the Hellenistic philosophy, the Platonic and Aristotelian logic that we use. And so he, yeah, he writes some weighty letters, but he's not much in person. And so Paul, that gives him the pathway to say, okay, we do walk around in these fleshly bodies, and we're not much in them. We're weak, but the weapons of our warfare are not weak. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. He's talking about centuries-old ideologies held by people, held commonly by a generation of people, religious concepts and traditions. He's talking about major thought strongholds that he pulls down. And when you pull down the stronghold, outruns all the soldiers who were in that fortress. And we captivate every one of them to the obedience of Christ, Paul said. So that your obedience can be fulfilled. So important is the theme, which is today's theme, the obedience of Christ, that every thought is to be brought into captivity to it. Paul's military metaphor has to do with the weapons of warfare in his apostolic arsenal. These weapons are divinely powerful for the takedown of ideological, philosophical, theological, religious, and often commonly held traditional strongholds often long held and popularly cherished. Right now, whether you know it or not, and I've had the privilege of studying some of this, we're at the end of the Age of Enlightenment. All these supposed enlightenments that have come through Freud, Marx, even Einstein in physics, quantum mechanics, all these things that people held dear all the way back from Galileo into Newton and his positivism and experiment are dying. That, that era is over. Even physicists are discovering that the primary function in the universe is causation, they call it, causation. And the real cutting-edge physicists like Wolfgang Smith, call it vertical causality, vertical causation. That not only is there causation in the universe, but there's a demonstrable will or intent in that causation. And it has to be the intent and will of an omnipotent being. Scientism will probably never acknowledge it. True scientists will. There's a difference between scientism and science. The end, we are coming to the end of scientism. You saw how it failed miserably in our country in the past couple of years. Scientism. The science is settled. Scientism. And the great power grab of climate change. Scientism. Not science. It's not science. So when you have somebody say, the science is fixed, you tell me what the science, what is the science? So there's a lot of things that this gospel is going to pull down. And then every thought's taken into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Often long held, cherished, popularly cherished things. But things that are arrayed against the knowledge of God, which we cannot separate from his unimaginable reconciling mercy and sovereign grace. Sovereign saving grace to humankind. The knowledge of God, if you know him, you know that he acts in unimaginable and inconceivable mercy. 
that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their sins to them. This is the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is precisely the knowledge that God delights in mercy. He delights in it. That his is an unimaginably merciful action. His intention is to show saving mercy to all, and he will do all his will. Romans 11.32, Isaiah 46.10, Jeremiah 9.23-24. So the weapons in the apostolic arsenal are divinely effective in demolishing the foundations of biases, prejudices, thought constructs that enslave human beings and collude and that's what's big about that's why these have to be divinely powerful because these things I'm talking about these ideologies these thoughts that go against the knowledge of God are done in collusion big word lately with invisible powers of sin and death and the flesh in collusion with principalities and powers spiritual evil in heavenly places and in collusion with the prince of the power of airborne spirits who brings sometimes unsuspecting and sometimes willing minions under his arrogant sway. That's what we're up against. Shield of faith, have it up all the time. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6, therefore, the apostle of Jesus Christ is speaking of the power of that which he calls in Romans 2, 16 and 16, 25 and 26, my gospel. He made it his own. It's God's gospel, but he made it his own. I've made Paul's gospel my gospel. It's my gospel. You do too. Of course it's God's gospel. It's God's announcement, God's proclamation about his son, Jesus Christ, who according to the flesh is the descendant of David, the royal genealogical line, per royal messianic promise. That's him. It's Jesus, who is dramatically declared by the Holy Spirit to be the divine son of God, by resurrection from the dead, brought about by the God of peace, who led up our great shepherd of the sheep from the realm of the dead. Romans 1, 1 to 4, 6, 3 to 4, 2 Timothy 2, 8, Hebrews 13, 20. Paul's gospel was and is an imperial proclamation. It's the imperial proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the disclosure of the mystery which was kept silent for ages but is now by command of the eternal God. I take that pretty seriously. To be boldly and everywhere proclaimed. One way of proclaiming it is just showing mercy and compassion, love, forgiveness to everyone. That's a proclamation, too. And so we're getting ready to kind of tackle this little passage. But the command or commandment of the eternal God is this proclamation. And his commandment is life. God who commands life also commands the proclamation of this message, which is the conveyor of the life that he commands. It's actually a conveyance of life to those who hear. It evokes faith. His commandment is life. John 12:50, as we've seen, Ezekiel 16:6, Ezekiel 37, 5 and 6. What does God command of the bones, the dry bones in the valley? Live. And they live. Can these dry bones live, son of man? Can this nation of yours on the precipice of destruction be preserved? Can it live again? 
Ezekiel replied, and I'll reply the same way Ezekiel did. Only you know, Lord. The obedience of Christ called his meritorious obedience by Lonergan in Thesis 15. We're still working off that for a month of Sundays now. It's of vital importance in Hebrews as elsewhere in the scriptures. The obedience of Christ is also called Christ's perfect obedience. And for our purposes, complete obedience. Completion is the key concept, the key thought in Hebrews. And we'll be seeing that much more very soon. Notably, in Hebrews 5.8, it says of Jesus Christ, although he was the Son, the divine person, eternal person, the eternal God, in whom all of divinity is found. Even though he was the Son, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. That's a very central part of Hebrews, Hebrews 5.8. Kaiper hon huios, emathen af on epathen, ten hupakoen. Though he was son, he learned emathen through suffering, epathen, a rhyme you can only see in the Greek. Again, so important is the obedience of Christ, that according to 2 Corinthians 10.5, every thought, that boils down to every thought you and I have. Once I had the thought that I was justified before God by my own personal faith, that thought was running around free, I thought. But then it was brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And I realized... I wasn't justified by my personal faith. I was justified by the obedience of Christ, his faithfulness to the point of death, his obedience to the point of the death of the cross. When you're awakened to that, that's when you know the gospel. When you awaken to that, that's when Christ shines on you. When you awaken to that, that's when you become part of the community called the new covenant community, the church, which is the penultimate end of redemption. You become part of that community and you become part of an apostolic community in a sense, in the sense that you're armed with these apostolic weapons. You say that's a bold statement to make. Yes, and I can back it up with a couple hundred scriptures. I don't have time right now to do that. The task of the preacher of the very good news, I call it. In fact, the more I understand the gospel, now I call it the very, very good news. Very, very good news. The preacher of the very, very good news, the task, and the task of the apostolate on the level of our own time, which is that all of you, the whole community, awakened to this faith in the apocalypse of Jesus Christ being universal restoration. It's our task to bring every thought into the obedience of Christ. It's the task of the atlat on the level of our time, apostolate, which again is the entire community of those in whom God the Spirit has engendered the faith, call it created the faith if you want, ignited the faith, kindled the faith that discerns the totality of God's love in Christ Jesus. You have heard and believed the gospel when the Holy Spirit engenders in you the faith that discerns the totality of God's love. It involves not only you and yours, but the whole world of mankind, in fact, the whole cosmos. Salvation isn't just an anthropological issue. It's a cosmological issue. It's a world wide. It's a universe-wide issue. So let's look at 2 Corinthians 10. Again, this is my translation. Tediously worked out in my cave, my own personal Gethsemane. Now I, Paul myself, who is supposed to be, and this is where he's 
laying out the charge against him, of no account in person, but bold and courageous toward you when absent. You could say the same about me, I guess. We were absent for two and a half years. Was I bolder in the pulpit being absent from you than I am now? Am I cringing now because you're here? No, I don't think so. You might, you might think so. So Paul said, I'm supposed to be of no account in person, but bold and courageous toward you when absent, meaning I write weighty letters, strongly worded letters. I appeal to you by the humility and the graciousness of Christ. Why was Christ humble? Because God is humble. The nature of God is humility. God can be lowly, and he chose to be lowly. And that's why he's exalted you. I beg you, he said, that when I'm present, I won't have to be bold with the confidence by which I plan to confront certain people who are of the opinion that we are walking in a fleshly way. Paul's coming to Corinth. And he's going to meet some people, the people that have been trying to usurp his apostolic authority. And then he says, for although we're walking, please notice that he moves over into the plural because whether Paul anticipated it or not, the Holy Spirit did, he moves into the plural because he anticipates a community-wide apostolate, which we all can relate to this. And we're given the same arsenal as he did. For although we're walking, Paul says, and that means conducting our lives in the flesh. This time he doesn't mean the flesh that's the eschatological enemy of the church with a capital F, but the flesh, just the weak part of our humanity, the weakness of our bodily humanity. Though we walk around in the flesh, we aren't waging war according to the flesh. Because the weapons with which we wage war don't belong to the sphere of the flesh. They're not carnal, as one translation says, but are divinely powerful for the tearing down of fortresses. We are demolishing arguments and every, here's verse 5, every proud assumption that rises up in opposition against the knowledge of God. He's referring right back to 2 Corinthians 5.19 for the knowledge of God. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. In other words, these things are against the knowledge of God, which have to do with his act of unimaginable universal mercy. Every hell preacher is preaching an arrogant, proud assumption against the knowledge of God. Don't get me wrong, there's bad consequences. Speaking of money, Judas had a couple of problems, as we know. Judas Iscariot. One of the problems he had is he thought that the monies that were given for the ministry of Jesus were his own personal funds because he had charge of them. So he was building a little nest egg for himself. But he never got to live in that little mansion that he was building, that little cottage he was building on an ideal tract of land. Instead, he hung himself and his bowels gushed out and was buried in Potter's Field. So, yeah, there are consequences for actions. I'm glad I didn't go into that sermon with the guy who took my Twinkies. <laughs> that, was, that would have been a little extreme, but that's, the point is, it's there. And here's the point. Taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, that's a theme, the obedience of Christ. It's a theme. It's a subjective genitive here. We're talking about the obedience of Christ, not bringing every thought to be made obeying, to obey Christ, but every thought has to submit to the thought of the obedience of Christ, his meritorious obedience. 
The whole Reformation doctrine is a stronghold. You're justified by faith alone, your faith alone. That's a thought. It's got to be brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ because you're justified, and so am I, by the obedient action of Jesus Christ, not by your faith, not by your obedience of faith even. By his obedience. I can't stress it enough in Romans 5, 18 to 19. His one righteous act yielded life and justification for absolutely everyone. And in 519, his obedience, hupakoe, resulted in constituting the many as righteous. And the many is in juxtaposition with all and in perfect proportion with all in 518. So the thought, as wonderful it is, oh, it's just by faith alone, and yes, I've expressed that faith alone, and so I'm justified, is wrong. Dead wrong. That thought, that whole theological system, has to be brought down and demolished, and then every prisoner taken out and taken prisoner, well, I'm justified by my faith, wrong. You need to be taken captivity into captivity to my jailhouse called the obedience of Christ. You're justified by the obedience of another, the meritorious obedience of Christ, by which Jesus Christ merited your salvation through his faithfulness. So you are saved by unconditional grace toward you through the faithfulness that is not of yourselves but of Jesus Christ. And for the rest of the ages to come, you're going to be shown to be a trophy of that grace. Got a problem with that? Well, yes, I do. You have a problem with that. Yes. Why? Because I'm out of the picture. Yes, you are. Or as Sean Connery would say, but of course you are, dear. That was terrible. I know Brian can do it better, Brian. Either Brian. You can go to either Brian, they'll tell you. And then he says, and we'll get to this later, and we're ready to exact revenge on every act of disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. We'll explain that later. The obedience of the Corinthian saints and of us in our time is fulfilled when we are completely submitted to the knowledge of God, his universally reconciling love that's destined to be universally known and to the obedience of Christ. In other words, our faith is in his faithfulness. Our obedience is the acknowledgement of his meritorious obedience. We don't even take step one of the Christian life until we know that, until we realize that. So only when we're compliant with the obedience of Christ, recognizing that it is only by his obedience that we're reconciled to God, justified, sanctified, washed clean, can every intrusive thought then that challenges that obedience is demolished. Our obedience is the obedience of faith. In the final analysis, it's a participation with the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now we're interpreting the clause here, and you might not have thought of this before, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ in a subjective genitive. We're talking about the obedience that Jesus Christ enacted. Not obedience to him, but the obedience that he enacted. That's the thought, that's the main premise that everything else has to be taken captive to. It's Christ's obedience to his Father's will. And his Father's will was the salvation of all mankind. His obedience was to the Father's will, and that will was universally saving will. God our Savior is not willing that any should perish on the negative side, but on the positive side, he is willing that all men be saved, all human beings be saved, and not only that, but come to a transcendent knowledge of the truth of the Son of God. And everybody's going to come to that, according to Ephesians 4.13. Pastors and teachers, 
And as I said, once in an ambulance, a girl said to me, who was ready to hit me with a needle because my pain was off the Richter scale, she said, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a pastor. She says, I don't believe in pastors. I don't like them. Bang. <laughs> to which I replied, I don't care. <laughs> no, it's the pain was gone. But I didn't have time to tell her that the Bible says that when Jesus ascended, he gave gifts and distributed them among mankind, including apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers, until we all come into the unity of the faith and into the measure of the stature of the a mature one new man, one new humanity, until all humanity comes into the fullness of a full-grown person, the standard of which is Jesus Christ. Has that happened yet? No. Then you still need us, pastors and teachers. You still need us. So we're interpreting this clause as our obedience, as Christ's obedience to the Father's will. Again, I want to say this. Let's say you have a thought. Now, the thought dominates you. This is a thought that can dominate. Addictions can be destroyed through this obedience of Christ, by the way. Every kind of addiction. Every kind of obsession. Because every kind of addiction and every kind of obsession is traced to a thought. An obsessive thought held in the soul stream of consciousness. But say, let's just, I, love, I like to pick on this one. Let's say that you have the idea, call it a thought, that through your personal merit or actions or your personal faith or belief, that justified you before God. You believed a certain creed, you believed the gospel, you believed. Let's say that this thought didn't just occur to you, but resulted from someone you heard who claims to be preaching the gospel or by someone who is notable theologian of the Reformation period, or a notable theologian in our own time. But that thought must be brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. It was his obedience to the will of God that justified, sanctified, saved you. That's why it's called his meritorious obedience. The merit is his. Even the faith is his. The faithfulness is his. And so the will of God to which Jesus was completely obedient, and we know he was completely obedient to it because he said at the end of his obedience to Telestai, my obedience is completed now, Father. You willed the saving of the world, it's finished. You willed the reconciliation of the world to yourself, it's finished, Father. Done. And Christ is completed when all of humanity is united to him and in him. It's called the whole Christ. W-H-O-L-E. That's the supreme good. That's the end of redemption, the goal of redemption. So God intended this universal salvation, including the individual salvation of each and every human being. Don't get me wrong. Each and every human being is going to have a testimony of how God saved them, of how God revealed to them the salvation that's in Christ Jesus, to them individually, personally. Every one of us will have a testimony, we could say. But our obedience is simply compliance with the obedience of Christ. It's our acknowledgement of it. It's our acknowledgement that we have been saved by grace through Christ's obedience, Christ's faithfulness all the way to and through the death of the cross. So the obedience of Christ is the major factor in our redemption. It's one way of speaking of a redemption as a mediation. 
Redemption denotes mediation or means, or, and it also denotes an end or a final objective. The church is not the final objective of redemption, but it's the penultimate end. It's a new covenant community of people who have been awakened to the faith I'm just talking to you about right now. Being awakened to that, I used to, when I thought you believed and were justified, and if you didn't believe, you went to hell, I was ashamed of that gospel. I, I didn't want to tell people that. Oh, your alternative is to burn forever in a Christless eternity without hope. And yes, God loves you, but he's more cruel than any Nazi ever was in any concentration camp. Can't do it. It's not, thank God I learned one day that's not the gospel. We go forth telling people about a done deal. You've been reconciled. The difference between you and I is not that you've been, I've been reconciled to God and you haven't, I tell the unbeliever. The difference between you and I is that we both have been reconciled. You just don't know it yet. I'm telling you now. You've been reconciled to God in Jesus Christ. God didn't impute your sins to you. Or to me. That's our gospel. Our gospel is the announcement of a done deal. It's an announcement of what God did in Christ, what Christ did in God, what Christ did in his meritorious obedience. So I look at the whole world of mankind now. I still swear at a driver that cuts me off, but then I think, wait a minute, let me bring that thought down. He, or probably she, <laughs> has been reconciled to God in Christ. You know, sometimes forgiveness is the greatest act of love. You realize someone, say you sinned grievously against someone, and we've all offended and sinned against someone, and we are... My Catholic priest would be happy to say, heartily sorry for it. God has brought us into Psalm 51, and we really have been grievously sorrowful with a godly sorrow. And the person's mad at us, and they have every right to be mad at us. But when we go to them, we appeal, there's an appeal. Will you love me with forgiveness? Forgiveness is the confirmation of love. That's 2 Corinthians also, 2, 11, and 12. Confirm your love to him, someone who had grievously offended everybody in the Corinthian assembly, by forgiving him. And by forgiving him, you know what you did? Canceled Satan's advantage. Yes, sin gives him an advantage, but lack of forgiveness gives him a real edge. It is different preaching face to face because I see your faces. <laughs> According to Romans 5.19... The obedience of the one Jesus Christ resulted in the constituting of all humankind as righteous, the justification of all humankind. And this is none other than the radical alteration of the human situation. Thanks to one Jesus Christ and his radical, I used to call it and still do, nth degree obedience, unlimited obedience, even to the extent of the death of the cross, not just death by crucifixion, which happened to millions of people in history and still is. The death of the cross, the death of the cross, where the Son of God became the only rejected one in all of humanity for us. The death of the cross. That's changed everything. The whole situation of humanity has undergone a radical change and shift. You can't, 
discover it by science or by scientism, by observation, by positivism, which is show me and I'll believe it. You can't discern it except by faith. It's a radical change of situation. And those of us that have been awakened to this faith and awakened to this knowledge of the obedience of Jesus Christ have to live knowing that there's been this change of situation in the whole human race from enmity to reconciliation with God, the whole human race. We have to live with that knowledge knowing that it is not generally believed and that it will not be manifested until the radical change of condition of all humanity through resurrection occurs. So of course we're going to get opposition. That's why we need the shield of faith. That's why we need the helmet of salvation. That's why we need the breastplate of righteousness. That's why we need the traction of the footwear of the gospel of peace. That's why we need the sword of the spirit and learn how to wield it with accuracy. So we're stabbing the right enemy and he's not, in, he's not visible. This glorious manifestation of the act of justification is yet future. But as many as he justified, which is all, he also glorifies. The glorification is the future to us. It's the end of redemption. It's the glorification not only of all humanity, but all of creation. God takes sin out of the whole cosmos. And that means in language of physics, he takes out entropy out of this vast universe. Its tendency toward death, which science would never recommend this to you, which is a result of sin, the Lamb of God takes that sin out of the universe and therefore takes entropy or the tendency of the universe toward death out of the universe. And so he restores all things. Thank God for the James Webb telescope coupled with the Hubble telescope where you can see they can see they say almost all the way to the beginning you mean all the way back to let's see the beginning what's the word for that genesis yeah the obedience of christ is the mediation of redemption universal salvation The obedience of Christ is foundational to Hebrews because it's through his obedience that he became the author of eternal salvation to those who obey him. Ah, there's the rub. No, not a rub. Those who obey him are simply those who recognize and acknowledge that it is his obedience that saved them and saved all. We know that. All of humankind and all the cosmos from death, the end of entropy, the result of sin as a lethal, corrosive, entropic element in the cosmos. I don't think anyone would want to change their gender if they had hope in the transfiguration of their humanity, which will come about when Jesus Christ returns. There's a trans coming, a trans configuration of our very humanity, a glorious transfiguration modeled by Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, which Pastor Stewart's going to bring two messages on soon. It's a thought thing. It's a thinking thing. The obedience of Christ occurred as he was in the likeness of a human person. But he was, in fact, in reality, a divine person with a human nature. So it says he became in the likeness of human persons, the likeness of men. Well, not, why not just say, He became a human person because he didn't become a human person. He is a divine person 
who assumed a human nature without ceasing to be divine. So, yes, we can say he's the God-man. He's the man Christ Jesus. But he's a divine person. There's nobody like him. Nobody like him. He's a divine person who partook of the human nature without ceasing to be divine, without ceasing to be God, so that we could become partakers of the divine nature without ceasing to be human persons. It also says he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. Obviously, he wasn't made sinful flesh. He was made in the likeness of every sinful human being, but he wasn't ever like every sinful human being because he was a divine person with a human nature unstained, unaffected by sin. So when you realize all that, when you realize that he became sin for us, that's got some power behind it. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He became sin. He was made to be sin itself. And so, he was in fact a divine person eternally begotten of the Father, the Son. He looked like a human person, Philippians 2.7. Even with the likeness, but not the essence of sinful flesh, Romans 8.3. But without sin, Hebrews 4.15. Separate from sinners in 7.26. But he was not, strictly speaking, a human person, but a divine person with a human nature and without sin. His obedience, therefore, was to the extent of the death, a death that could only be experienced by a divine person with a human nature. The death, not just any death, not even just any substitutional death. The death of the cross, not just any cross, as one of hundreds of thousands. Why don't you read too much about crucifixion in history? Because even historians were too put off by describing it. Anyone that saw it didn't want to talk about it. I asked my father, why don't your buddies from World War II ever want to talk about, the ones I knew, talk about what they saw in the war. And he said, because it's too unbelievable. <laughs> we don't think people would believe it. You know? And that's what crucifixion was like. The brutality of it, the cruelty of it was unspeakable. You couldn't, but that's not even what the Bible's talking about when it talks about the cross. We're talking about someone who experienced death as the wages of sin, where sin takes you if it gets to take you all the way. And that would be hell. There would be a hell if God let the wages of sin be paid fully by you and me. There would be a hell because sin would take us into an endless, terrible death. But Jesus took that for us instead, for all of us. That's the death of the cross. No one else could do it. If you want to get anything done, you got to do it yourself, God said, and did. Now, I have so much here prepared that I'm jumping around a lot, so I'll just enter into the closing phase and probably repeat some of these things by giving the word for redemption here. Apollutrosis, A-P-O-L-U-T-R-O-S-I-S. Actually, the accent falls here. Apollutrosis. It's one of the A words like apocatastasis, pantone, the restoration of everything, or like anakephalion, or anakephaliosis, universal recapitulation, Ephesians 1.10. These words relate to redemption as denoting an end, and that's where we're going to go next, not today, but next time, or in the next times. Next week, I'm tempted to preach on what I call another 
I'll just leave that there for a minute. There's another 9-11 coming. My 9-11. Okay, I'll give it away. Hebrews 9-11. It's the dead center of the book of Hebrews. There's a dead center. There's a center X spot right in the center ring. And it's Hebrews 9-11. Talking about good things that have already come and are coming. Good things that have already come the reconciliation of the whole world, the radical alteration of everything. Good things yet to come, the glorious transfiguration of the universe and all of humanity, the dead and the living together. It belongs in the dead center, 9-11. 9-11 of Hebrews belongs in the dead center, and I'll explain it. In fact, 9-11 to 14 is the core and heart. It's the heart of the heart. It's the beating of the heart of Hebrews. And guess what it depicts? A lamb. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself to God without spot, without spot, means a lamb. Right in the heart of Hebrews, a lamb. Right in the heart of Romans, a lamb. Right in the heart of Revelation, a lamb. Right in the heart of the Old Testament, a lamb. Right in the heart of the New Testament, a lamb. Right in the heart of the whole Bible is the lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. There are countless sons and daughters of God. There's only one instance of divine sonship. There's only one divine son. He's the son of the blessed one, the son of the living God, the son who proceeded from the father eternally. So in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, these are all kind of where we're going. Since death came through a man, that's a human man, Adam, so also the resurrection of the dead came through a man, the divine man, Jesus Christ. And 1 Corinthians 15, 22, just as in Adam, the human man through whom death came, through his act of disobedience, parakoes, Romans 5.19, all die. So in Christ, the divine man through whom came and through whose obedience came justification and life to all humanity. So in 1 Corinthians 15.22, as in Adam all die, so in Christ, the divine man, all will be made alive. God was in Christ in two ways. God, that is, divinity itself, was in the man, Christ Jesus, even in his historical manifestation and incarnation, because this man was and is God. All of divinity and all that can be called Godhead is in him bodily. So when we say God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, we have to take that into consideration. God was in Christ then, inasmuch as Jesus Christ is a divine person, even after he assumed a human nature and is properly called the God-man. But there's a second sense. God the Father was in Christ. In that day you will know that I am in you and you are in me, that I am in my Father, that my Father is in me, therefore my Father is in you and you are in my Father. John 14, 20 to 21. So God the Father was in Christ. If you see me nailed to a tree, you also see my Father nailed to a tree. If a man loses his son, his son has experienced a death. But his father has experienced the death of his son in a way that is past reckoning and indescribable. Every thought, 
And that includes every intention for that matter, every intention. Must be brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. This is another way of saying that we became or we become controlled by the love of Christ. To have every thought brought into captivity to Christ is almost the same as saying we are controlled by the love of Christ. And we have yet to see that in 2 Corinthians 5.14. We're bringing in 2 Corinthians in a major way in the next few weeks and months perhaps. So his resurrection from the dead was for or with a view to our justification. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor and there we see him. He is crowned with glory and honor precisely because he suffered death in the line of obedience to the Father. And so now, as Hebrews 8.1 says, and I see we're going to go into an obedience, face-to-face the obedience of Christ, part 3 soon. But now, as Hebrews 8.1 says, what does it say in Hebrews 8.1? See, all this is leading up to it. We have an archpriest who is of such significance that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesties in the heavens. This archpriest is none other than Jesus, whom we now see with the enlightened eyes of our heart, crowned with glory and honor. It was his obedience that discovered and secured and brought home eternal redemption for us all. His obedience. My faith is in his faithfulness. My faith that God awakened in me is faith in God's unimaginable act of mercy in his sovereign act of grace in Christ Jesus. My faith is in a reconciliation of the whole of the human race and the whole of the cosmos that has happened in Jesus Christ. As William Lane said, and I will close with this, William Lane One of my favorite commentaries, and I've read, am reading nine or ten of them. On Hebrews 10.5 and following, William Lane stated his own lane and wrote this. The connections drawn between the sacrifices and the law and between the offering of Christ and the will of God are extraordinarily important. They prepare for the revolutionary statement that the old cultus and the law that prescribed it have been set aside on the strength of an event in which there was concentrated all of the efficacy of a life unconditionally submitted to the will of God. I thank God for one life unconditionally submitted to the will of God. That one life is Jesus Christ's life. Slightly down the road, or we could say down the lane, Lane wrote, the sufficient sacrifice of Christ in conformity to the will of God created the new situation for the worshiping community in which every obstacle to fellowship with God has been effectively removed. And so this is my conclusion in 1 Corinthians 1.9. Faithful is God who called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, let's let's hold on tight to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Father, give us the strength, the courage, the patience to live in this time in between the radical alteration of our situation from enmity to reconciliation. Give us the strength to move move forward with the gospel of peace whereby we announce to a world still at enmity with him in their hearts that they have been reconciled to him. Give us the tenacity and the steadfastness, Father, in our own very own thought lives to bring every thought, every obsession, every occupation of our minds and hearts 
into captivity to the obedience of Jesus Christ so that our lives more and more, here a little, there a little, can begin to reflect the efficacy of a life unconditionally submitted to the will of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Wednesday, I think you'll have Pastor Brown's message up on the website, and so we'll see you next Sunday. Maybe we'll do another 9-11. We'll see. Take care.